Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, the new year has started off with, with a lot of news. We have the U.S. confirming that we just eliminated one of the biggest Iranian generals. So this guy, Qasem Soleimani, is one of the top generals and... The result of this, one of them, aside from all the foreign affairs things have happened, is stocks have dropped nearly a percent for the day. So I'm going to be talking about when events like this happen, when worldwide events happen, big things change, international politics, and how that relates to my investing strategy. Then we have news of Carlos Ghosn. I want to talk about this story because I think it's just amazing. This guy was the former chairman of Nissan. That's a Japanese car manufacturer. He was living in Japan. He was charged by the Japanese government of a lot of financial misconduct. And then he was held on house arrest and bail for the better portion of a year. Well, Carlos decided that he didn't like being on bail in Japan. He thought he was being treated pretty unfairly. So he decided to just uh, skip town, get in a plane and fly to Lebanon. And the journey of how he did that is pretty amazing. There's a lot of different discussion going on around in this story. So I want to talk about it. And then the last bit of news I want to talk about is this survey, the number one regret that investors had in 2019. The biggest thing that they regretted now. So spoiler alert, the regret is that they didn't invest enough money in 2019. I'm going to be talking about why this survey is completely pointless. It doesn't prove anything except for showing basic human psychology. So I'll be talking about that a little bit later as well. Okay, so first of all, I wanted to jump into my portfolio here as well as my YouTube channel. And I wanted to do a quick recap of 2019. So For people that are new here, you might not know exactly what this channel is about. I'll give you a quick summary. In February of 2019, I uploaded my first YouTube video, so roughly 10 months ago, and is with the simple goal of broadcasting a specific investment strategy. I thought that historically, the whole industry of finance, I think, has been very opaque. They use confusing jargon. They don't really tell about what they're invested in. So what I thought would be interesting is implementing a specific strategy centered around this portfolio, which is a dividend growth portfolio with the goal of creating a secondary stream of passive income, income that you do not have to actively work for. And that's what I tried to create. I thought it would be interesting for people to see this unravel and unfold live week by week, month by month. You can follow this portfolio and how it does. So I've uploaded since then, 10 months ago, roughly 62 different videos. This is episode 63 of this series. Now, the viewership has grown substantially over that amount of time. We're closing in on roughly 70,000 subscribers, as well as we have thousands of listeners on the different audio podcasts. So the audience is growing pretty rapidly. Every video is getting quite a bit of views now. And it's been interesting to be a creator and be able to see that happen and get the input from everybody that joins in the channel. Because we have viewers that are 18 years old. We have viewers that are 70 years old, every different age demographic. And over 30% of the audience is outside of the US. So I get to see a lot of different perspective from people that are outside the US as well. So that's been an interesting thing. The channel has been growing a lot. I appreciate, first of all, everybody that shares the channel with friends and family and that's helped in that growth be a part of that. I appreciate all of you. And I appreciate everybody that's new to the channel. But regardless, I started this YouTube channel in 2019 and I've had specific goals for both my YouTube 
and my investments. And that's what I'm going to go over in this video is just specifically the things that I want to accomplish in 2020, the type of things I've wanted to do with my YouTube channel and the type of things that I actually like to track that I think are achievable things to track. So I'll go ahead and start with my portfolio. I have narrowed it down to two main goals that I have with this portfolio, with my finances, two main things that I think that I can accomplish in 2020 that I'm going to set out to try to do. So one of them, I'll write it out here, is to invest $2,000 a month. That's what I want to contribute to my portfolio is $2,000 a month. That is something that I think I should be able to do. So I look at my portfolio. That's been about the rate that I've been funding it ever since starting it is about $2,000 a month. That's part of the reason why you see this nice line of it growing is not only because the gains and the dividends have been consistent, but because I've been depositing $2,000 a month. Now, this is something that I feel that I have a fair amount of control over. I should be able to do this. My income allows me to do it. If I budget wisely, if I'm disciplined with my finances, I should be able to deposit $2,000 a month. The conditions that would make it so that I'm not able to do this are either I have a loss in income, like I lose my primary job, not able to find different work, or I have some kind of huge drastic expense come up, some kind of huge health problem, something like that. But barring those two different situations that I think both of them are, are pretty extreme, uh, I think that I should be able to accomplish this. Now, I will say that $2,000 a month is a lot of money. Don't get discouraged if you're not able to deposit this much. I read about portfolios and people investing all the time where they're putting five, six, ten thousand $10,000 a month into their investments. So people depositing more money than you should be no reason to be discouraged. Now, another thing I'll mention on the $2,000 a month is that when you start off, this is a, a lot of money being deposited. Every single month, it's like adding a huge chunk to your portfolio. You know, percentage-wise, if you have $10,000 and you add $2,000 a month, you just increased your portfolio value by 20% with that one month, that one deposit. But as my portfolio gets bigger and bigger and bigger, these $2,000 a month deposits make up for a lesser and lesser percentage of the overall value. So right now, I had to put in $2,000 a month, like I just did a deposit here. I cheated and, and put one day early. So on the 31st, I'm counting this as January's though, I put in $2,000, but you know, it went from 70,000 to 72,000. So no longer does this make a drastic difference with my portfolio value and every single deposit is going to have a lesser and lesser impact on that. The positive side is, is that the more that you build up the portfolio, even though your deposits have less and less of an impact, what does happen is the dividends that you earn increase pretty rapidly. So if I look in the past month, $328 earned in the past 30 days. So even though my deposits make up a, a smaller percentage of my overall portfolio, my dividends are growing. They're paying me more and more every single month. I can look in the past week, even though the market went down with this news, my earned dividends came in at $114. So that's how much I earned in just the past five business days. Now this brings me to my second goal. I'll write it out here again. Have an average income of $400 a month in dividends. So this is my second goal. These are my two main goals. One of them is to invest $2,000 a month. The next one is to have an average income of $400 a month in dividends. Now you might be asking, why isn't your goal to have a $100,000 portfolio value, right? I might be able to accomplish that in 2020. The reason why is because I'm trying to focus on goals that I feel like I have a level of control over. You do not have control over what direction the market goes. The market decides to go down 20%. There's no way I'm going to reach $100,000 portfolio value while depositing $2,000 a month. Just it will, it will not happen. So setting a goal centered around a portfolio value 
is very difficult because you don't have control over the outcome for the year. My goals are centered around the things that I think I have a reasonable control over the outcome. I know that even though I might not hit $100,000 in portfolio value, depending on which direction the market goes, if the market goes up or down, I should be able to hit an average income of $400 a month in dividends, investing $2,000 a month. This highly depends on if the companies are able to maintain their dividend payments. If we enter a recession, some of them might cut their dividends. If we enter a really terrible recession, a lot of them will cut their dividend payments. But that is the really extreme worst case scenario that might make this not happen. Other than that circumstance, unless we enter an extreme 2008, 2009 level recession, I should be able to accomplish this goal of $400 a month. If you're somebody that has watched this channel for a while, you know that I don't focus as much on the market gains, the capital appreciation, as much as I do the dividends. Because like I said, I just think that you have more control over a growing stream of dividend income than you do what direction the market goes. So focusing on the market gains is very difficult because then you feel like you're winning if the market goes up and you're losing if the market goes down. With the dividend income stream, you can control for that and continually have it go up month over month and year over year, despite the different market conditions. So if I go to this graph here, this is something that I've tracked on a Google spreadsheet since the beginning. So I look at it since January of 2018, the amount of dividends that I've earned, $0 in January, $0 in February, then it starts to pick up. And you can see that this grows over time as I continually deposit, reinvest the dividends. This has been a growing stream of income. Now, I don't have the number yet of December 2019, so of just last month, but that's going to be in the next video. But what I'm going to do is do the same thing. So I have this Google spreadsheet here. I'll zoom out on it. This is a spreadsheet where I track my investments. Most of this looks really confusing, but literally all of this is just automated lines. So you just plug in a few things here and then it, then it automates these columns. But what it does is it tracks your actual monthly income and then it extrapolates your average monthly income. Right now I'm at an average monthly income of $198. I want to double that in 2020 from $198 to $400 a month. That's gonna be difficult without putting in double the money, but I think with the compounding and the way the portfolio is working, I think I'll be able to get there. So I'm gonna be putting in $2,000 a month. Hopefully I can get to a point where these numbers, the actual income is consistently around $400 or more. So these are the two goals, to invest $2,000 a month, that's the tough part that requires a lot of labor, a lot of budgeting, different discipline to be able to accomplish that part. And then here's, I think, the easier part to have an average income stream of $400 a month of passive income. That's the, the fun part of it that I hope that I'm able to accomplish. And having an extra $400 a month put into your cash balance, continually paid out every couple of days, these companies are paying dividends to be able to have that passively working in the background, put into your cash balance. I think that, that would be something really cool to have. So of course, after that, you know, that's not enough money to live on 400 bucks a month, but it's 2020. I plan on investing longer than a year. So I'm going to be investing in 2021 and 2022 and so on and so forth. So I'll be able to grow that passive stream of income over time, but I'm excited about these goals. We'll see how it pans out. Maybe they won't come to flourishing. You know, maybe I won't be able to accomplish this. Either way, I'm going to be broadcasting it, seeing what happens. I'll tell you guys how it's going. I'll also create an updated version of this tracking graph. I know a lot of people are using this. So I'm going to create a new spreadsheet that will incorporate the new year into this so that the graphs will adjust to be able to have the new 12 months of data. And I'll offer that for free for you guys. So you'll have a link to be able to copy this and use it for your own tracking as well. As far as goals for my YouTube channel, I don't have many. The main thing is I would just like to create better quality content in 2020. So 
that's been a big goal in the past in 2019 is I've wanted to create content that would be the type of content I would like to consume. So I've tried to create it in a way that I would look forward to viewing and consuming this content and moving into 2020, the main goal I have for my YouTube is to maintain and increase the quality of the content that I'm creating for you. So I wanna be able to create good, thought-provoking, motivating content that people look forward to viewing. That's gonna be my goal in 2020. So we'll see how that works out. Okay, well, that's enough of goals for now. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into some news. As president, my highest and most solemn duty is the defense of our nation and its citizens. Last night at my direction, the United States military successfully executed a flawless precision strike that killed the number one terrorist anywhere in the world, Qasem Soleimani. This, this guy was the top Iranian commander. He was the top dog. He was the, uh, if you compare it to U.S. commanders in the military, he'd be the very top commander. He'd probably be like the top three commanders. So he played a very integral role. This is the biggest event in U.S. foreign policy, the biggest change that has happened in a number of years. So this is a really big event. I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of this event. And I know the temptation here, whenever you bring up events like this, everybody becomes foreign policy experts. I'm not going to go into that today. When I look at my portfolio and I see the stocks going up and down, I can go here and look. The Dow Jones went down 0.81%. The NASDAQ went down 0.91%. And the S&P 500 went down 0.72%. Every major index dropped as a result of this news. That's what happens with investors is international news like this, things that create uncertainty, what's going to happen soon, you know, how Iran respond to this. That causes uncertainty. Uncertainty means more risk for investors. Risk means it's being priced in right now with stocks dropping. So that's typically how these type of things go. Now, this is the reason that I like dividend investing. This is part of the, the main reason that I like it is dividends do not care about what happened in Iran. No company is going to cut its dividends because of this event. They don't care. These companies are, are still, their revenues growing. They're still increasing their, their market share. They're going to pay their shareholders their dividends. So even though the index has dropped almost a percent in a day, you know, stocks drop that much, I don't plan on changing anything with my portfolio. So people that are writing in saying, you know, what do you think of this? What, what do you plan on changing? I don't plan on changing anything because this really just doesn't affect my strategy. My strategy is based around having an ever-increasing income stream of passive income. That's dividend income. And that's the reason why I focus on this number down here, the dividends, rather than the market gains. The market gains can be influenced by the fears of investors. Other people selling out of your companies because of news that happens in Europe, news that happens in China, news that happens in the Middle East. People can take money out of companies or put money in, and that affects the market cap. That affects the market gains. The earned dividends is something internally decided. It's money that you're going to get paid regardless of what's going on around the world. The only thing that affects this number right here, the earned dividends, is if the companies can actually not afford to pay the dividend. It's not artificial reasons. They have to decide, hey, we do not have enough revenue to pay these dividends, so we're going to cut them. That's the one thing. That's the reason why I focus on it is because I can ignore news like this. I can say, well, that's you know crazy what's going on here, but it doesn't really affect my strategy. For people that are focused on market gain and growth, you might have to implement different strategies here. So I don't know what the best strategy is for that, but for dividend investors, the best thing to do when stuff like this happens, most of the time it's best just to buy more shares. That's what I plan on doing right now. The people that believe that it will escalate to something much bigger, 
I'm not exactly on that page right now. I don't think that it's going to get to a point where it's going to affect the profitability of Costco, of Disney, of companies like that. So what I plan on doing is holding on to my investments, enjoying my dividend income, regardless of what the share price does. Okay, now let's move on to my favorite piece of news that's happened in the past week. The first car you ever owned was? A very old used Fiat car. Oh boy, this guy is named Carlos Ghosn, which has led to a lot of bad puns in the news because his last name being Ghosn, and he fled from Japan to Lebanon while he was on bail, so they're calling him Carlos Ghosn. And another comparison that's been made is uh, he's been compared to Mr. Bean. I'm not saying he looks like that, but I'll just note that the comparison has been made there. But regardless, Carlos Ghosn is the former chairman of Nissan. He's worked in the car industry for a long time. He was actually really well respected. In fact, this little video here, this Get to Know You, shot by Wall Street Journal, was shot in 2017. So he was a well-respected person in the industry up until just a couple years ago. And he was actually the one credited with completely saving the company Nissan. He came in and it was a struggling company going out of business and he cut the right manufacturing and turned things around to where it's a profitable company now. But things took a pretty bad turn for Carlos here. The saga of ousted Nissan executive Carlos Ghosn and the Japanese government began with his arrest in 2018. Accusations of financial misconduct, including underreporting his salary and forcing Nissan to pay losses from his personal investments, led to his initial arrest by Japanese authorities at a Tokyo airport on November 19, 2018. That's right. Carlos was arrested. He was placed on bail, charged with a number of financial misconduct crimes, and Later, months later, after being on bail and house arrest for a very long time, he escaped in this audio equipment box. So they smuggled him in this box into a private plane, and then he flew to Lebanon. It says here the former auto titan Carlos Ghosn, packed into a case typically used for concert audio equipment, was sneaked onto a private jet at an airport in Osaka, Japan, late Sunday, according to the people familiar with the matter in what has become one of the corporate world's most stunning cases of bail jumping. And this is where the story gets interesting, because at first thought, you're thinking this is just a story of a wealthy man escaping justice. He just fleed to a different country. But reading more about this, you see some questionable things in the Japanese justice system here. So I'll give you a couple examples. This is a Wall Street Journal opinion piece on it, where they're actually taking the side of Carlos Ghosn, saying that a lot of the things that were happening were completely unfair of how he was treated. One part here, it says, the 65-year-old is held for weeks, initially without charge and subject to interrogation without an attorney present or access to his business records. So there's a couple differences right there. One thing in the U.S. is you can't hold somebody for weeks without charging them for something. You can only hold them, I think, for actually like two days in the U.S. without charging them. Maybe three, maybe 72 hours. But it's a very short time. You can't hold people for weeks without bringing charges against them. In Japan, I've read about this, but what they can do is charge somebody with some crime, hold them for a number of weeks because of that crime, and then all they have to do is charge them with a new crime. So if they have any suspicions of something new, they just keep revolvingly charge people over and over and over again. And the reason that they do that is because they want you to confess. If they can keep you locked up without you actually being convicted of a crime, some people get so discouraged that they're spending so much time week after week, month after month in jail or on bail without actually going to trial that a lot of times they'll just say, hey, look, I just want to get through this. I'm going to confess to some stuff just so I can get through this. And that's where it says right here, a trial was expected in 2020, though more than 99% of defendants in Japan are convicted. 
that's the conviction rate is 99%. Pretty incredible there. The last part of this opinion piece, it says, the Gone saga has been a fiasco from its dubious start. The best way justice could be served now would be for the truth about the accusations to emerge. For Mr. Gone to get his reputation back if the evidence is as weak as it seems and for Japan to reform its justice system and corporate governance so that they are more appropriate for the modern free market economy. So there's some people that are almost defending Carlos Harris. And then there's other people that think that Carlos just believes that he's a god, that he can do anything, that he has a, a ego about himself and that he can escape anywhere. Well, here's Bob Lutz saying that. Uh, we don't know. You know, he claims he's the victim of a, of a conspiracy to oust him. Uh, but having known Carlos gone for a number of years and uh, having observed uh, his personality over the decades and seeing him become more and more imperious uh, and uh, clearly suffering from CEO disease where uh, he showed all the signs of believing himself to be uh, omnipotent and infallible. That's the former General Motors vice chairman saying that he's suffering from CEO disease where he believes that he's omnipotent and infallible. So you're getting a lot of different sides on this subject. The last thing I'll say on this story is that right now, he's in Lebanon. They haven't made contact with him. The government hasn't made contact with him there. And Interpol sent out an arrest notice. So if he travels to any country where they have any kind of treaties or anything, extradition treaties with Japan, they will arrest him and extradite him to Japan. So it's kind of unknown right now whether Lebanon is going to do that. But because they have no treaties with Japan, they have no agreement to do that, they probably won't. Okay, and then the last bit of news that I'll mention is a study that I see being shared everywhere. It shows up on all the financial forums and everything in, in different places. And I don't understand why, because when I come across studies like this and I actually read what's going on here, the, the first thought is how completely useless this is. So it does not reveal any information that is useful nothing that we can do with it. We haven't gained anything from it. It doesn't say anything other than just affirming some basic human psychology. So the big conclusion, the big reveal that we find out from this survey is that the number one regret that investors had in 2019 is they wish they invested more money. Okay, let's go ahead and look at a 2019 graph of the S&P 500. Here we have the, the previous year, so this is roughly 2019. The stock market went up roughly 27%. Pretty much everything except for oil was in the green. So revealing that a lot of people wish they put more money into the market after knowing that it went up nearly 30% in one year, what does that gain us? What do we learn from that? That people wish that they put money into investments that made money. Breaking study from NerdWallet. Uh, lots of people wish that they invested in Netflix 10 years ago. Breaking study from NerdWallet. Lots of people wish they invested in Amazon 15 years ago. Groundbreaking. After knowing that an investment goes up in value, people wish that they put more money into that investment. This reveals nothing. It's a silly survey that gets a lot of clicks. It gets shared around. But all it's doing is revealing the obvious, that people, looking back in hindsight, wish that they acted in a way that made them more profitable. The, the top one is invested more money. The next one is invested more aggressively. These are all things that are hindsight after knowing that the market goes up. What I think would actually be useful here, something that would be interesting if anybody from NerdWallet is listening, do a study after the stock market drops 
25, 30% in a year. After we have a down year where the stock market goes down 20, 30, 40%, and then do a survey and we'll see if the top result is people wishing they invested more money or that they invested more aggressively. That would actually be interesting. That would be something where I would truly be interested in the results of it. Because if we had a lot of people saying, yeah, they wish they did invest more aggressively. I'd be interested to know that because I bet some people would really want to invest more aggressively. If stock prices are going down, they wish that they could put more and more money in. Certainly, if you look back in 2007, 2008, now knowing the stock has gone up so much since then, it's easy to go back and say, I wish I put more money into the stock market during those years. But when you're actually right in that timeline, it's difficult to say that. So this study doesn't show us anything, but the same study asking the same questions right after a down year, right after the stock market took a pretty big hit, that would be something I would actually be interested in and I would want to know the results of. Okay, let's get to some questions here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. That's Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com if you want to email in, ask a question. I also read messages on Instagram and Twitter. So you can message me that way or leave comments on YouTube videos. Sometimes I respond to those as well. The first one is from Siggy. This is an Instagram message. He says, hey, Joseph, first of all, love your videos. I've been watching your videos since early March and you've been the reason why I've consistently poured money into the market. Well, Siggy, you don't have that regret of not investing enough in 2019. I'm glad I could help out with that. He says, my question is regarding the company IBM. They have a decent growth over five-year span and are currently paying at a 4.86% dividend yield. Why do you not hold IBM in your portfolio? Do you think it isn't so great? I believe they definitely have a place in the future as they are the largest data analyst out there. Okay, Siggy, so why do I not hold IBM in my portfolio? They, they have a really good dividend yield. Seems like they're growing. The big reason why, it's not because of the numbers behind it. There's number analysis where you look into the data of a company, and then there's the qualitative analysis where you look at the moat of a company. You look at the overall direction and decisions that they're making that can't really be quantified in the numbers. So the reason that I don't invest in them is totally because of that, that qualitative analysis. My own personal biases dealing with different companies and looking at different companies, it's just not one that I'm interested in investing in. Couple of reasons why. First of all, IBM is a shadow of its former self. It used to be the Amazon of the day, the Microsoft of the day. If you went back 30 years ago, it was the company for fund managers and people to hold in its portfolio. It's the biggest company in the world. People had it and it didn't matter if they lost money holding it because it would be like if somebody buys Amazon and they lose money buying Amazon, you know, can you really blame them? It's Amazon. That's the same way people viewed IBM. But you look at it now and you could go up to people and ask, what does IBM even do? And a lot of people wouldn't have really any idea of what products they sell or what they actually do. So I'm kind of in that category and I work in tech. I work as a programmer. So I spend my, my time in different companies from small companies to pretty big companies, companies that revenue over hundred million a year. And I don't really ever see IBM ever mentioned at least with the companies I deal with. So their clientele might be huge Fortune 500 companies, but personally, I don't have any interaction with them. And that's not the case with a lot of other tech companies. Products that I see being used all the time in tech now are Amazon with AWS. I see that used everywhere with almost every company that has to do with tech. They're using some of Amazon's services. There's Microsoft, there's Shopify, see using everywhere. Twilio for text messaging. You got Salesforce, probably the best company in tech right now and in, in, in cloud platforms right now is Salesforce, which is 
they have so much market share. They have such an aggressive sales team. They grow their platform. They become kind of entangled in every company that they become a part of that it's really difficult to move from them. But these are companies that I see that are current. You also have companies like Atlassian that is for repositories. I see that being used all the time for different uh, Git repositories and for collaboration tools. There's just a lot of different tech companies like Slack is another one that I see used all the time. It's one that I actually run into in the work environment. IBM is one that I just don't see that often. And that makes me nervous investing in a tech company working in the field. And when I really don't run into their products that often. And I know there's going to be people emailing in and say, hey, you know, I run into their products all the time. Maybe that might shape your perception of them differently. But I have to see what they're actually selling, how it works, the, the tools behind it and the products to make me more interested in including it in part of my portfolio. When I can look at these different companies like Microsoft and say, man, they're really relevant. We use a lot of the tools that they make at our work. They're benefiting our company. I have that connection with it. So it makes me easier putting my money into it. So I hope that makes sense, Siggy. I'm not saying that it's a bad investment. That's not what I'm trying to say. Just that it's easier for me to invest in companies that I know the products that they're selling, the things that they're doing beyond just what they have in writing. I actually see it in practice, in play, the things that they're doing. It's easier for me to make investments in those companies. Caesar says, hello, Joseph. Discovered your channel through YouTube recommended videos and I've seen all episodes. Good job, I must say. Thank you for that, Caesar. I appreciate you watching those videos too. He says, I live in Europe, Portugal, and I was out of the market for whole 2018 due to being afraid of a market crash. Before, I was much more exposed to gains and losses since I was heavily invested in the technology sector, only the FANG stocks. Anyway, I'm 38 years old and debt-free. I have a two-year-old and brand new house with a big backyard, two cars, and I'm also the father of a one-and-a-half-year-old child, all is well. I am back in the market with a much more well-thought-out strategy similar to yours, although my wife is reluctant about stocks. Last December, I decided I wanted to take my chances again in stocks, but this time around my strategy is dividends the same as yours. Both portfolios have many companies in common. But there are some things I'd like to know your point of view on since I've entered the market with it breaking record highs day after day. So I have to pay a lot for each share and in the end, I get the same dividend as you, for example. This continues on. He says, I've seen your example of the market average by doing constant investments, but I think that even doing this in the case of a crash, I'll be harmed too much. I have invested at the moment 22,000 euros since last December, and I can invest 800 euros per month. If the market dips 70 or 80%, that is a that is a drastic dip, 70 or 80%. If I have enough money set aside, I can buy more shares since everything will be on sale. I have been waiting for a crash since December of 2018. It did not happen, only a correction. So I've been waiting for a year. I was tired of waiting, so I took the plunge. What do you think about it? Should I set up a 20% stop loss, for example, so my broker sells shares that take a 20% dip? Another thing, I heard that stop loss is not efficient in market crash scenarios since it will sell whatever the buying offers are, even if set below the stop loss value. Is this true? I'm looking forward to your next video. Hopefully with your point of view on my thoughts and reflections, regard Caesar. Okay, Caesar, there's a there's a lot in this email. So let me go through it. The first thing is you, you stayed out of the market for a year because you were waiting for a crash. It did not happen. And now you're in a situation where, you know, you're jumping in now, but things have gone up in price another 20, 30%, right? So I get that situation. It's just a matter of making the decision to start investing. A lot of this, I think, comes down to your point of view on things. So the question of when you should start investing, it sounds like what you're struggling with is timing the market. And for obvious reasons, this is a good example of why that doesn't happen. It puts people in these tremendously 
uh, stressful situations where they're constantly watching the market going up and they're saying, man, should I jump in now or should I wait till the crash happens? And then the market keeps going up and they go, I wish I would have jumped in a little bit earlier when I was originally thinking about it. Then the market keeps going up and they go, well, now I could have jumped in now, but it went up even more. And this just goes on and on. I think it's a better strategy to just start slowly feeding into the market, start building positions. Even if shares are a little bit expensive, you can start building positions with the knowledge, fully knowing that the market will eventually dip and then you can continue investing. So you should be investing with the knowledge, with the premise that stocks will eventually dip and that's okay. It's okay owning companies at a higher price, knowing that eventually they'll dip and then you can continue buying more shares at a lower price. That is dollar cost averaging. So you're buying right now where things are a little bit frothy, things are a little bit expensive. Uh, You're paying a little bit more for share price. Just know that you're doing that, but you're going to be paying less when things drop 20 or 30%. So it just averages out. That's part of it. If you only invest on the write-up, if you only invest when things are going up and things are in the green, and then you sell out when things already go down, that's not dollar cost averaging. That's a pretty bad strategy. Now, your question in specifics to stop losses. So this is a tool that I don't like. I don't plan on using. I've never wanted to use a stop loss. Just reading about how it works, what it does, I don't really see the purpose of it. So I can go ahead and give you a couple examples here. We can take a look at a stock like Home Depot. And you mentioned, is it worth it to maybe put a 20% stop loss? So when a stock drops 20%, you automatically sell out of your position. If it drops 20% or more, you sell out of that position and it stops the losses from going any further than 20%, right? That sounds good in theory, but the way that this works is stop losses are a tool for locking in losses. That's the way that it works. You'll never hear Warren Buffett using a tool like a stop loss. Hey, Warren Buffett, we have a tool that after stocks go down a lot in price, then you sell. Can you imagine pitching that different tool to him, seeing how that works and seeing how he responds to it. He would think that you're insane to wait until something goes down in price and sell. And I can give an example here, Home Depot. Let's pretend that we had a 20% stop loss. That was the percentage that you gave, 20%. We can look at the graph here, the last five years. Well, we haven't had any 20% falls so far up until 2018. And then you get into mid-2018 right here, and you go to early 2019 right there, a 24% drop. So if you had a stop loss on Home Depot here, you would have owned it right here. The stock would have dropped 20% and you would have sold it right here. And you would have saved about 3% on it. Now, since you're sold out of the position, now since you sold out of the position, you miss the gains when it quickly recovers and goes back up another 47%. You sold out at about $172 a share. Now you're missing where it goes up to $192 a share where it goes up to 211, where it goes up to 231, you know, $237 a share. You're missing all of that because of this tool that sold you out when it dropped 20%. So this would be a tool that would help you sell at the complete bottom of this graph here. That's what this would accomplish is selling when a 20% drop happens. I don't think that it's a really helpful tool to use. I don't really see the point of stop losses. I think holding on to a company based off of whether it's worth holding on to is a much better strategy. So that's all I'll say as far as stop losses are concerned. But Caesar, your overall question, I just get the impression that you haven't committed to a specific investment strategy. The one that I advocate in terms of timing investments is dollar cost averaging. It means you buy shares when prices are high, you buy them when they're low. You do both of those. So 
You don't try to buy them when they're only low. That's market timing. Very difficult to do. Leads to a lot of anxiety, a lot of missed opportunity. Um, but you don't only buy when they're also very high. That leads to losses. If you only buy when the stock market is high and things are expensive, and then you do not deposit money because you see red in your account, you see that you have losses, that's also not dollar cost averaging. So you need to buy when things are high and when things are low. That's dollar cost averaging. If that is a strategy that you're able to implement, it's been proven to be a very good one in historical terms. So that's my advice as far as that's concerned. Kevin says, thank you for your transparency and informative videos. I have a question. How many stocks should I own? So this is a good question, Kevin. And it's a short question, but you can go into a lot of detail here. As far as diversification, if you look at the charts of how many stocks you own and then the risk of being under diversified, it gets to a point where the breaking point is anywhere from 25, 30 stocks. Once you get past about 25 to 30 stocks, Adding on more additional stocks generally doesn't help with reducing risk of diversification a lot. So that's about that that point of where you get the most bang for your buck is around 25 to 30 stocks. But there's more to diversification than that. So if you have 20 stocks and you think, well, I'm really diversified, but every single one of them are cloud computing stocks, then you're not diversified. You could have 50 stocks. And if they're all the exact same industry, if they're 50 oil stocks, you're still not diversified. So not only do you need 25 to 30 to be properly diversified, but you need those broken into different sectors. You can see that in my portfolio that I have them broken into all these different sectors. And the reason why is it diversifies your risk with sectors. So if oil has a bad time like it's had in the past year, then that doesn't matter because you only have a portion in that sector. Or if telecom does really bad for some reason, or if consumer does bad, when you diversify through the different sectors, it helps reduce the risk. Now, mine isn't perfectly equally weighted on the different sectors because I don't think they should be. There's some sectors that I think are less cyclical and less risk prone than others. And those are the ones that I've weighted a a heavier portion of my portfolio to. But not only should you own 20 to 30 stocks, make sure they're diversified across different sectors. If you do that, I think it would make you pretty diversified. So if you have 25 to 30 broken into different sectors and they're quality companies, I think you would have a pretty diversified portfolio. The only case for owning just like one or two or three stocks is if you're extremely good at analyzing companies, you have extremely solid picks and they're conviction picks. So they're companies that you are willing to put a lot of money in because you highly believe that they'll be successful. So some big name investors do that. Like Charlie Munger owns three different stocks. They're really good companies. And he doesn't think you need to be diversified if you own really quality companies. But for most people, the traditional advice is to be properly diversified, you need 25 to 30. If you're looking to just be completely diversified, then you could just own ETFs. If you go and buy some broad market ETFs, That will diversify you across hundreds, if not thousands of companies. That's one step that a lot of people take as well. I feel like I'm somewhat in between both ends of that spectrum. So I'm not in the category where I have a super high concentration of my money in only a couple companies. Uh, I don't have any conviction picks where I'm willing to put that much of a portion of my portfolio in. But I'm also not in the category where... I'm just buying the broadest market ETFs where your money is split and invested into thousands of companies, a lot of which you don't even know what those companies are or what they actually do. I'm kind of in between where I have a good number of companies, about 45, and that's split up between different sectors. And I think they're high quality companies and 
I have my money invested in those. I know all the companies. I know the products they sell and the services they offer. And I, I like that familiarity with knowing actually what I own. So there's both ends of the spectrum. I don't think any of them are wrong, but the traditional advice, if you're going to do individual stocks, own 25 or more, have them split up in different sectors. If you're going to do anything else, buy ETFs and that will automatically diversify you. All right. Well, that's going to be all of it for now. If you've enjoyed the content, hit subscribe and you can support the channel that way. Another way is to join the Discord channel. So there's a Patreon link in the bottom if you're interested in that. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next time.